0: Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. Dedicated to the evolution of you, because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be. Helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. Resistance to change and resistance to the unknown are pretty much the same and they're both tied to shame because total embracing of of change, total embracement of the unknown means that any moment you have to be willing to throw out every single thing you think you know. Hi, it's Joseph and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. We've discussed the Dunning-Kruger effect on the show before, the psychological phenomenon whereby people who are not good at something tend to think they're better at it than they really are. So the less you know, the more you think you know. But this cognitive bias can only exist in relation to our misguided assumptions about reality, namely our assumption that we know how reality works and will continue to work. And at this point, where our assumptions and biases meet, we delude ourselves, When we start chipping away at this delusion and in the process start chipping away at our own resistance to change, we can actually find a lot of power in the act of not knowing. And today I want you to embrace that power. I offer weekly member webcasts, online courses, and mentorship at clearandopen.com because it's my truth that with the right tools, anyone can eliminate the people, money, and time problems holding them back in business. And I share parts of these webcasts and courses on this show because I want to help you too. If you're enjoying the show and learning from it, I'd love your feedback. If you're listening to the show on an Apple device, all you have to do is open up the podcast app, view the full description of this episode, and click the link to leave a rating and review for the show. Thanks very much for listening. Let's start the show. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the next course I want to do here. When you're in the kind of role that I'm in, you're usually... Through teaching, you're discovering what people don't get that you thought they already get. It's part of the Dunning Kruger effect, right? The Dunning Kruger effect is that you you tend to have blind spots about your own competence. When you're not good at something, you tend to think you're really good at it, but there's a there's a corollary to it. You also project your gifts onto people, which I'm sure you guys can all relate to with employees. You just assume that, you know, this thing you've practiced for 25 years, of course they can learn it in five minutes, right? (laughs) Oh, wait got to break it down. What's the beginning? Oh man, I don't even remember. I don't know how to teach this. It's just so natural for me." Right? So anytime you're in a teacher role, that's something you have to deal with. Well, one thing I don't think I ever had to learn, I remember hearing, it wasn't even said to me directly, which is kind of salient. A friend of mine said to my mother when I was a teenager about me, said, Joseph is in a constant state of experimentation. And I remember when my mother said that to me, that a friend of mine said that about me, I felt some shame about it. Like it was a criticism. Because the very real and shadow side of it was, I was confused. This was when I was a teenager. I was confused, lost. I didn't know who I was. And I was you know, trying to find out who and what I was. I didn't really know what I was doing, why I was doing it but I just knew I wasn't satisfied by any of the answers I was given or any of the groups I was in. I just felt like a stranger in a strange land wherever I went. And just yesterday, I was thinking about this and I realized what a profound compliment that actually was. That actually being in a state of constant experimentation, well, certainly has had its shadow sides and difficulties. But the essence of that is in part not certainly not completely, but is in part, this willingness to be in a constant process of discovery. Now, I'm certainly not perfect and I get stuck in my ways here and there as well. But one of the things that I see when I look out at the world is people look very slow to me in how they change. And that's not exactly a true judgment. <laughs> it's all relative, right? But I change really quickly because I just don't see myself as being a noun and I never have. It just looks like the, a human being to me looks like a river, not a pond. So when when I see people in these contracted states where they think they know who they are and they're operating with these very rigid set of beliefs, even if they don't think that they're they're rigid, I see resistance to change. And so as a result of that, Resistance to change and resistance to the unknown are pretty much the same and they're both tied to shame because total embracing of of change, total embracement of the unknown means that any moment you have to be willing to throw out every single thing you think you know at any moment. That's real openness to change. Because the way it looks to me is that life is constantly bringing us information, insight, teaching, revelation even. And our attachment to our existing beliefs, assumptions about reality, etc., that becomes the aperture for how much we can let that in or not. And so people change really only as quickly. They learn only as quickly. They grow only as quickly as they're willing to open that aperture up. But unconscious of how they're keeping it somewhat narrow, they tell themselves stories like, well, change is hard. Change is slow. Business is hard. It takes a while. And so it is. But is that actually the essential reality? Because you've all had moments where something just changes like that. right? You've all had that experience where you just get something and boom, you're doing it. You're putting it into action. What happened in those moments? I thought change was slow. What was usually happening in those moments is you've been chipping away, not at the change project, but what you've been chipping away at is your own resistance to the change, your own unwillingness to make the leap. And then finally, you get to this point, and what you've really done perhaps is collected enough evidence or enough courage to actually go, you know what, I'm going to try this different way of managing. Or I'm going to try, I don't know what, this different way of hiring. But I remember you know, this, there the are a few different versions of the question, but the question that I talk about so often of, who do you want to be in your life and how can you use your job to become it? I've worked with people and they've known about that question for months, sometimes even years. The question that become that reframes the entire employment agreement, and I've worked with people who've known about that question for months and not asked it. Well, what? Because it's difficult to ask the question. Repeat after me, right? It's not difficult to ask that question. There's no what's really going on in the people who resist asking that question. Is they don't know what's going to happen next. If you really dig down, and I do that with people, well, why haven't you asked that question yet? What's going on? And if you ask enough questions, they'll say something like, well, then, what happens if I, if I don't know how to make the job serve that need? What, what will happen next? They want to know what will happen next because the way they currently manage is in a known way. It's controlled. I'm going to say this. They're going to say this. I've done it before. It's happened. And it's the devil they know, right? rather than the one they don't. When actually people can go for months, years even, and it's only about one thing. I don't know what's going to happen next. Do you ever? I mean, let's be honest with ourselves here. What control is it you really think you have? Because even in your conventional way of doing whatever, managing, leading, whatever it is, you get surprised sometimes. So you might as well live in the actual reality of you don't know what's going to happen the next moment at any time in any place in your entire life. And that your sense of control is a complete delusion. Wake up and start experimenting. I don't know what would happen next after I ask a question like that. I know. Isn't that cool? Do you have to know? Well, what if I don't know what to say? Could you say that? I guess so. But what if they thought I was an incompetent manager? What if they thought you were being honest and vulnerable and you and you could what if you said, "You know what? I've never asked an employee that question before, but I'm trying something new and I don't know what to say right now. Let me think about it and get back to you next week." That's pretty much the worst-case scenario, right? But the mind's like, "Oh no, you've got to be someone in control so that your employees Can trust you to be that made up thing that you're supposed to be who has all the answers, right? So they can continue projecting all their authority stuff on you so that you, right? Because how well does that work? Do you want your employees to pretend they have answers when they don't? Right? Don't you want them to ask questions when they're confused? Do they? Right? Usually not as much as you would like, right? Uh huh. Do you know why? Because you're teaching them that. Don't you want your employees in a constant state of experimentation? I mean, you know, within reason, you don't want them doing crazy stuff, but you want them innovating. That's a kind of experimentation, right? You want them pushing their edges. You want them learning. You want them looking at themselves and being vulnerable. Are you showing them that? Are you being that to the degree you want them to do it? Or are you still stuck in the delusion that you're that A you're in any kind of control and B that they need to see that neither of which are true. What people need is when we know it's a subtle distinction about leadership. Do people need a strong leader? Yeah, sure. But what's a strong leader? Because we hear that and we think, well, someone who is, you know, someone with certainty and confidence, okay, fine. What's confidence? Is it the same as control? Is it the same as knowing what's going to happen? No. What they really need is someone who says, I have a vision for where I think we're going. And then when things change, because they inevitably do, people need a leader who can say, Okay, we tried this, we were wrong about it. We're going to pivot now, everything's fine. That's strength. And the employees, say consciously or not but but what if we're wrong again and who the leader is being they don't necessarily say this but who the leader is being says we're fine change happens that's contextual leadership when people think that you know it's, you see this in parents parents pretend that they get stuff that they don't get and then children end up in therapy when they grow up, right? Because when a parent is afraid, children sense that. And when the parent doesn't say they're afraid, the child learns that there's a difference between the presented reality and the real reality. And they're taught that that's okay. That's normal. They don't like it. It doesn't feel safe because it's incoherent, it's inauthentic. It's disintegrous when the outside and the inside are different. So what do they do? They learn to split themselves off in the same way. Oh, I can feel this on the inside, but I'm supposed to present X on the outside. And then they grow up and lead other people and they do the same thing. You see the cycle? And then we wonder why we don't trust our leaders or trust ourselves because that split is everywhere. Not vulnerable. It's not real. Is this split that you're talking about that children learn from that example and their parents different than the distinction of uh, I feel an emotion, but there are appropriate and inappropriate ways to express it? Great question. That's it's It's very much related because when when someone feels a strong emotion and they can't bear it and let themselves feel it and express it in an appropriate way where the outside and the inside could be coherent they repress it which is like putting your thumb over a garden hose and then it causes it to spray out cuz the inside's going to get out no matter what that's the thing right Many of you probably had parents who knew they weren't supposed to be angry. So when they were angry, they didn't name it. They didn't say, Wow, I'm feeling a lot of anger right now in a very calm way. They never did that. They would repress it, repress it, repress it. And then one day they would fly off the handle and get really angry. Become anger rather than having anger. That's mostly the way our culture handles anger. Joseph, one of the things that the Gen Y, the Generation Y has is what I've noticed, they call that being plastic. Nice. And I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, that's great. The younger generations, uh, millennials and Y, I believe is below that, right? Y and then Z. I mean, every, every generation younger you go, beginning with probably mine, I'm generation 13, I think. I, can, I, got an, I need a chart on my computer or something. I never can remember these. Every generation younger you go values authenticity more. And this is one of the bases, one of the arguments for the style of management that I teach. Because if you think it works now, the, the kinds of things I teach now, in 20, 30 years, it will be the only thing that works. Because the plasticness, it's, it's going to make, it already makes them crazy. And more and more of these people are moving into the workforce. And they, the, the younger folks will not tolerate an incoherence in their leaders. And this, by the way, is one of the, uh, the top two drivers for engagement. Respecting and believing in leadership, which for younger people is going to include the criterion of authenticity, and mentoring. And go ahead and try to mentor someone when they don't think you're authentic. See how well that goes. Right? You will get lip service for miles. So, you see how all this accountability, metrics, money, and shame stuff, it's all wrapped up into this one tight, tangled little ball that has to do with fundamentally a willingness to live in wonder and in reality. I mean, what if mentoring someone was really just about joining them in a state of wonder or really leading them in a state of wonder, right? Helping them, joining them, certainly, but then leading them to wonder in places where they're not wondering. I mean, that's one way of describing. Really all I do. I look for where people have a contraction, you know, a belief they're hooked on, and then you know, like Byron Katie question, well, what if that's not true? It's just a wonder. Okay, you're trying it this way, it's not working. I wonder what else you could do. What if this? What if that? You do that enough times, you start to see patterns, you start to see answers. but I'll give you a, a clue, uh, a new coach like who I was 15 years ago, all they got is their questions. They don't know what they're doing. But it turns out, it's quite powerful to not know. Because you do it enough times, then you start to build a sense of knowing after a few years. And then the danger is you start to have enough knowing that you lose some of the wonder. You stop wondering with the client, you start telling them what they should do. Even when you're right, it has a backfire effect because nobody wants to be told what they're doing what to do. And then you have to start all over and forget everything that you know. And even when you know you're right, you have to pretend that you have no idea. Because on one level, you don't. And then it becomes really complicated. (laughs) It's funny. uh, Sandler Sales Training has something similar. They call it the dummy curve. (laughs) Nice. Exactly. (laughs) A brand new salesman who's a dummy doesn't know all the answers. It actually can be pretty effective. Yes. Usually, there's a dip in the middle. Well, you'll, you, forget, you forget the beginner mind thing and, and you know too much and people will contract from that. Yeah. It's the same in martial arts. And Bruce Lee uh, said once, uh, before martial, art, martial arts, a punch is just a punch and a kick is just a kick. And then you study martial arts and a punch is no longer just a punch and a kick is no longer just a kick. And then in mastery, a punch is just a punch and a kick is just a kick. Same with the, uh, for that, those four things. Uh, un- unconscious, incompetence, then conscious incompetence, then conscious competence, then unconscious competence. That same kind of thing. In the middle, there's usually a period where you get into trouble. You're working too hard. Similar to uh the five stages of engagement, the flow model, right? And see you know, where conscious competence is thrival, where you're like, okay, I know how to make stuff happen. And eventually you hit some kind of limit there which will drive you into flow. Isn't it cool how all those models are describing really the same aspect of reality in one way? I love models that way because they're all like different angles into reality, but none of them are reality. I've picked up a lot of similarities between your teaching and the, um, some of the teachings in the a religious tradition that I was raised in. Cool. Yeah. Cool. I like to hear that because there are many days where I feel like I don't know what I'm talking about. I think of my stuff. So when people say it reminds them or is you know fits with other things that they learned, I always feel validated and a lot less crazy. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the Clear and Open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that Clear and Open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do.